Section 76 of The World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. The World Story, Volume 15. The World War. Edited by Horatio W. Dresser. Section 76. With Ambulance Number 10. 1915 by leslie buswell the following selections from the letters of one of the young american volunteers in the ambulance service indicate some of the experiences and perils to which the driver of an ambulance is subject like so many other letters from the front those from which the selections are taken were not originally intended for publication hence as someone has written from this unconscious story one gets an impression of the devoted service which young Americans are rendering in France, and of the way in which they are reducing the agony and saving the lives of wounded French soldiers. The Editor I came here, Pont-en-Mousson, last night, June 16, 1915, after a seven hours' journey to Nancy from Paris. On the way I found much to interest me, as, if you will look on your map, you will see that the railway runs beside the river Marne, then the Meuse, and lastly the Moselle. An officer pointed out to me all the interesting places where the Germans advanced and then retreated in a hurry, leaving everything behind, even to their flags, which I believe are now in London. On arriving at Nancy, I was met by Salisbury, our section leader, and after a good meal in the most beautiful little town you could hope to see— and where the Kaiser and ten thousand troops in dress parade were waiting on a hill close by to enter in state last October, we started by motor for Pont-de-Mousson. Some fifteen kilometers further on, our lights were put out, and then we entered the region under shell-fire. At last we came to Pont-de-Mousson, a dear little village with about eight thousand inhabitants, and felt our way, so to speak, in the darkness and silence to the barracks, which are now the headquarters of the ambulance. I found that there were about twenty cars and twenty-two men there, the latter all enthusiastic about their work and the help the section were giving the French. After being introduced to the boys, I went to my room, which is some one hundred and sixty meters up the road, nearer the trenches, but safer for all that. Here I found I was to share the house with another man, Schroeder by name, a Hollander and a very nice fellow, who has already lost one brother and has had another wounded in the French army. My bedroom is a quite typical French peasant room, very comfortable, and I felt grateful to know that I was to have a bed and not straw to sleep on. I went to sleep there my first night in comparative quietness, only hearing now and then the crack of a musket, which in peacetime one would think was merely a backfire of some motor. In the morning I woke at six, and went to breakfast in our barracks, which is always served at seven o'clock. My friend or housemate pointed out, about five hundred meters away, what looked like a fallen tree across the road. Imagine my feelings when he told me they were the French trenches. On the ridge of hills on the right, one sees a brown line. These are the German trenches. And walking down the road to breakfast, one gets the knowledge that a first-rate rifle shot could pick one off. After breakfast, we started on a tour in a Ford ambulance or petite promenade, as an officer told us we were doing. We left the river, where we could be clearly seen by the Germans entrenched some thousand meters away, 
and I confess I sighed in relief. For it is difficult to accustom oneself immediately to the possibility of receiving a bullet in one's head or a shell in one's stomach. We left pont mousson and started up the hill to our first Place de Secours, relief station. On the other side of the hill, on our right, extended the famous bois la Pretre, but it is no longer a wood. It is just a wilderness with a few brown stumps sticking up. We turned to the left and mounted a steep hill and entered it. Here the birds were singing and all was green and beautiful, but one could see trench after trench deserted. Here was an officer's cemetery, a terribly sad sight, six hundred officers' graves. Close by were also the graves of eighteen hundred soldiers. As we waited, a broken-down horse appeared with a cartload of what looked like old clothes. Le mort, the dead. I had never seen a dead body till that moment. It was a horrible awakening. Eight stiff, semi-detached, armless, trunkless, headless bodies— all men like ourselves with people loving them somewhere all gone this way because of what i don't know do you one becomes habitué they told me it hardly seems possible that we are so close to the german trenches fair food even hot water wonderful moonlit nights and a comfortable bed every other night we have to sleep in the barracks to be on duty any moment and so we sleep on straw and don't undress. Every fourth night we are on duty all night, and go to X, and stay there in the car, taking wounded to the first, second, and third base hospitals. For two out of the six kilometers we are exposed to German view, and the whole of the way, of course, to shell-fire. On my first arrival at this little mountain village, X, I was horrified to see two people lying dead in the road in huge pools of blood. Six German 150s had been suddenly launched into the village, which is full of soldiers, and killed six soldiers and wounded some thirty. Three of the six shots had landed actually in the road itself. Two of our ambulances were in the streets at the time, and only chance spared them. I asked where the shells had struck, and my stretcher-bearer looked around for a moment, and then pointed under my own car, and there was a hole some nine inches deep and two feet wide. Only five minutes before, and it might happen again at any moment. I took down three couchés, as the lying-down ones are called, and had to pass in front of a battery of seventy-fives, which fired as I passed, and gave me a shaky feeling, I can tell you. Then backward and forward for two hours, carrying more wounded. Last night I was on duty all night at X, and it was a great strain riding backward and forward in pitch darkness up and down the very steep and narrow road. I had to go to Auberge Saint-Pierre at about two o'clock this morning. This road is in full view of the Germans and much bombarded, and shrapnel burst close by, which reminded me that a lovely moonlight night, with trees and hills and valleys dimly shaping themselves, can be other than romantic. It was a sad trip for me. A boy about nineteen had been hit in the chest and half his side had gone, and as we lifted him into the car, by a little brick house which was a mass of shell-holes, he raised his sad, tired eyes to mine and tried a brave smile. I went down the hill as carefully as I could and very slowly, but when I arrived at the hospital I found I had been driving a hearse and not an ambulance. It made me feel very badly. 
the memory of that faint smile which was to prove the last effort of some dearly loved youth. All the poor fellows look at us with the same expression of appreciation and thanks, and when they are unloaded it is a common thing to see a soldier, probably suffering the pain of the damned, make an effort to take the hand of the American helper. I tell you, tears are pretty near sometimes. On Friday, July 9th, I again took down a German wounded, this time a German of the Kaiser's or a Crown Prince's bodyguard. The German Crown Prince is against us here. He was dying. Picture to yourself a fine, truly magnificent man, over six feet four, wonderful strength, with a hole through both lungs. He could not speak, and when I got to the hospital I asked in German if he wanted anything. He just looked at me and chokingly murmured, Catholic. I asked a soldier to fetch the priest, and then two brancardiers, stretcher-bearers, and the doctor, the priest, and I knelt down as he was given extreme unction. That is a little picture I shall never forget. All race hatred was forgotten. Romanist and Anglican, we were in that hour just all Catholics, and a French priest was officiating for a dying German. A Bosch. The race that has made Europe a living hell. I came back about seven o'clock at night with more wounded, and asked if he still lived. Yes, would I like to see him? I went in, and although he breathed his last within an hour after, his look showed recognition. And that man died, I am sure, with no hatred for France. The day before yesterday, August 13th, after having made several trips with wounded, I had a pressing call to Auberge Saint-Pierre. There the Germans were bombarding as usual, and it was unpleasant. A shell had landed near a kitchen, killing several and seriously wounding one soldier. He had a hole as big as your fist right through his back. There is a chance if you can get him to the operating room quickly, I was told. It was eighteen kilometers to the best surgeon, so off dear old number ten and I started on our rush for life. Toot, toot, toot! and even the soldiers, realizing that I had a man's life in my care, made a clear way in the road ahead, and through village after village, without moving the throttle, we sped on and on. Bump, bump, bump! What did it matter if I had to shake him about a little? He was unconscious, and every second counted. I hope I won't have a puncture, I found myself muttering from time to time. Finally, I drew up at the tent. In a second, two brancardiers had the car unloaded, the surgeon in white was washing his hands, and thirty minutes from the time my charge was given into my care, he was lying on the operating table. He may live, said the surgeon. That was my reward. That is why I am happy even here, only for this reason. One sometimes saves lives, and never intentionally kills. Today, September 14th, the section and our section leaders were decorated. The ceremony took place in the garden, and the croix de guerre was pinned on Salisbury's breast. The double kiss given with dignity, and a few words of congratulation by the médecin divisionnaire, division doctor, ended the notable event. So we now have hanging over our mantelpiece this coveted insignia. No letter from America has come to me for over two weeks, which is not very stimulating. Out here, molehills are mountains, and mountains, impassable. 
and although it is of no real importance whether one gets a letter or not, or whether the letter one may get is cold or warm, yet these small and seemingly insignificant things are sometimes enough to send away sleep. I suppose the truth is I really need a rest and change. It has seemed to me lately that modern warfare means even more of a nervous expenditure than a physical one. The nights are getting cold, dark, and damp. The leaves are falling, underbrush turning. The icy hand of winter stretches out nearer and nearer, and the trials of the poilu are doubling every day. Yesterday I talked with a priest. He, in most of his calling, voluntarily accepted at the beginning of the war the fearful task of burying the dead. It sounds very simple, doesn't it? It means handling terrible objects covered with blood-soaked clothing that once had the shape of human beings. That is a little of what burying the dead means. And this is the work the priests of peace are doing in France. Wonderful, you think? No. It is French temperament, French courage. End of section 76